How many of you understand the nature and elements of worship? Do you understand the nature and elements of worship? Could you define worship and what is involved in worship? Could you do it accurately? Could you evaluate whether you are worshiping in a manner that's actually pleasing to God? Do you know how to please God in your worship? These are very important questions. And you say, well, why should I worship? Well, let me give you three reasons why every Christian needs to understand and practice biblical worship. I'm not going to take the time to look at these scriptures to, uh, to prove this. This hopefully is something you're already familiar with. And uh, hopefully I'm kind of preaching to the choir here, so to speak. But number one is because God has repeatedly commanded us to worship. You can see that in Deuteronomy 6 as well as Matthew chapter 4, which we'll look at in a moment. But number two, true worship is a confirmation of our salvation in Christ. Believers worship Christ. That's just the natural thing they do. And number three, the absence of true worship and the presence of false worship arouse the terrifying judgment of a jealous God. Do you want God to be on your side or against you? Well, you better make sure you worship Him and worship Him in the proper way. The history of Israel reveals the emphasis that God places upon worship in the lives of His people. And I'll give you an example. It's a wonderful quote here. John MacArthur has written a wonderful book called The Ultimate Priority. Here's what he says, I quote, In the Old Testament, worship covered all of life. It was the focus of the people of God. For example, the tabernacle was designed and laid out to emphasize the priority of worship. The description of its details requires seven chapters, or 243 verses, in Exodus, yet there's only 31 verses in Genesis that are devoted to the creation of the world. The arrangement of the camp suggests that worship was central to all other activity. The tabernacle was in the center, and immediately next to it were the priests who led in the worship. A little farther out from the tabernacle were the Levites who were involved in service. Beyond that were all the tribes facing toward the center, the place of worship. End quote. Obviously, in the Bible, God places more emphasis on worship than he even does upon the creation of his universe. What does that tell you how important this is to him? So we see the tabernacle was later replaced by the temple, which was also the center of the nation's life and also required uh, a lot of instruction from God for, for even the construction and maintenance. So again, something very important to God. Throughout the rest of your Old Testament, that first part of your Bible, God, we see either blessed or punished Israel. And do you know what God's blessing or punishment was based on? We see God blessing Israel. We also see God punishing Israel, don't we? But what was the basis of God's blessing or punishment to the nation of Israel? And the answer to that question was the quality of their worship quality of their worship determined whether they received God's blessing or whether they received God's punishment and judgment. Well, since the church has been instituted in the New Testament after Pentecost, starting at Pentecost, 
worship has remained an essential priority for the people of God. And if you're a believer, you're part of that people of God. And so every believer has an obligation to understand the the significance and the practice of worship. I want you to notice what Jesus Christ says to every one of us in Matthew 4, verse 10. He says, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. So the implication here is that every believer is going to worship God. It's not an option. You shall worship the Lord your God. So let's talk about the essence of corporate worship. Now, <clears throat> before I do that, let me just mention that you under, I hope you understand that worship is a 24-7 thing. You do it 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and you never take a day off. At least you shouldn't. Okay, So what, what I'm talking about here today is what Psalm 95 and 6 are talking about, is corporate worship. So let's talk about this. What is the essence of corporate worship? Well, let's look at the word itself. Our word worship is derived from an old English word, worth-ship. And when, when, when you look at it that way, I think that'll be helpful to you in understanding the word worship, its basic meaning. Worship is acknowledging the unique worth of an object and showing honor and respect to it. Uh, some synonyms you could, you just do a little search like I did. Some synonyms for worship, you'd find things like honor, respect, awe, adoration, reverence, and even glorify. This practice should not be one that's, uh, as I said, just limited to a public gathering and of a church service. Scripture uh, is quite clear on that. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's really a relationship. It's fellowship with God, which is something you ought to be doing all the time. God requires us to be involved in personal worship as well, not just corporate worship. Uh, again, I like uh, what John MacArthur says in his book, The Ultimate Priority. Here's what he says, quote, The source of most of the problems people have in their Christian lives relates to two things. Either they're not worshiping God six days a week in their life, or they're not worshiping one day a week with the assembly of saints. We need both. End quote. Do you get the significance there? That is the source for a lot of our problems. The ultimate priority is worship. In your private life as well as Meeting together, as Hebrews says, or don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together so we can come together to worship. So today, what, what I'm going to do is focus primarily on the corporate aspect of worship. And I want to look at uh, several principles about corporate worship that we see in Scripture. And we need to understand these things if we are to participate, participate properly in corporate worship. I mean, how, how are you supposed to do something if you don't know what is the essence? What's the nature of it? Right? It's, it's like going to work. I mean, you go to work, you know, you get a job description, right? Well, that's what happens in most places you go to work. That job description is there so you know what is the nature and the essence of your job. So you can perform it properly. Well, God gives us the essence and nature of worship as well in his word. So, number one, we see here in Psalm 95 and 96 that the focus 
of true worship is not man, not your feelings, not your emotions. It's God. Now, hopefully you're already there in Psalm 95. These are uh, Psalm 95 and 96, two of the greatest passages in Scripture about worship. I want you to look at, we'll just start looking at a few verses here to start with before we get the uh, bigger picture. But look at verse 6, Psalm 95, verse 6. Look at this, Psalm 95, verse 6. It says, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of, at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. What's the emphasis there? I want you to notice, how often do you see the, the all capital letters, Lord, referred to in those few brief verses? That, that tells you the subject there. That tells you the focus of worship is obviously God. Yahweh is the word Lord there. He's the sole object of worship. He is the dominant character in this drama of worship. The primary purpose of worship then is to do what? If God is the focus, then we're to bring Him glory and pleasure. So our interests, our needs are then only a, it's just, um, it's a secondary thing then, isn't it? Our needs, our interests are not the most important thing. Unfortunately, we can often approach corporate worship with our focus on something other than the person and glory of God. You've probably done it. I certainly have way too many times, I confess. It's sin. It's sinful to do this, but uh, sometimes we can think primarily about how we are enjoying the service that we're in. Maybe you're even thinking that right now. I, I hope you're, you're enjoying this anyway. But, but it's not about us. Sometimes we can even sit, sit in, a, in a church service and we can be preoccupied with matters that have nothing to do with worship. I've known ladies who are thinking, oh, what, what setting did I have that oven on? When, when I put that chicken in the oven, oh, what? oh man, I hope it's not burning. You know, I've seen ladies, they sit there and they're fretting about their, their Sunday lunch that they're, they're going to have in a, a few moments. Is it going to be burnt or is it going to... Something else is going to happen to it. Uh, sometimes we can be thinking about sports. Ooh, you know, how, how's my favorite team doing? Or how, how are they going to do? I hope they win today. Or uh, we might be thinking about relationships or, you know, my appearance. So what does other people think about my new dress? Or, hey, oh, I don't have a tie. Oh, I hope nobody's offended by that. Or, you know, there, there could be a number of trivialities that we, we sit here and think about other than the most important thing, of, co of course, is God. You're not worshiping if you're concerned about, you know, burning your roast, are you? If we're to worship in a biblical manner, then we've we got to concentrate our hearts or our minds on the one we're gathered to honor and glo bring glory to. Again, I like uh, this wonderful book. I can't get away from it. The Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. Highly recommend you read it. Here's what Donald Whitney says, quote, 
the more we focus on God, the more we understand and appreciate how worthy He is. As we understand and appreciate this, we can't help but respond to Him. Just as an indescribable sunset or a breathtaking mountaintop view evokes a spontaneous response, so we cannot encounter the worthiness of God without the response of worship. If you could see God at this moment, you would so utterly understand how worthy He is of worship that you would instinctively fall on your face and worship Him. That's why we read in Revelation that those around the throne who see Him fall on their faces in worship. And those creatures closest to Him are so astonished with His worthiness that throughout eternity they ceaselessly worship Him with the response of, Holy, Holy, Holy. Since worship is focusing on and responding to God, regardless of what else we are doing, we are not worshiping if we are not thinking about God. You may be listening to a sermon, but without thinking of how God's truth applies to your life and affects your relationship with Him, you aren't worshiping. You may be singing holy, 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 but if you aren't thinking about God while singing it, you are not worshiping. You may be listening to someone pray, but if you are, aren't thinking of God and praying with them, you aren't worshiping. End quote. You get the point? God is the focus. Must always be the primary focus. Number two. As we think about these elements and the nature of worship, let's think about this one here. The participants in true worship actively respond to God with their whole being. Whole being. Underline the word whole. Say, is that actually in the Bible? Yes, I'll show you in a moment. But uh, let's let's think about this from Psalm 95 and 6 for a moment. What what we're about to see here, I'll, I'll point out some things to you in a moment, but what you're about to see is that true worship involves an active response to God. It's not passive. You are not a spectator when it comes to worship. Uh... Sadly, too often worship uh, becomes a like, like a spectator sport, where you're just kind of s- sitting in the crowd, looking what's going on on the stage. That's not worship. I want you to notice what Psalm 95 and 96 say about our our participation in worship. It requires participation. Look at this. Psalm 95 verse one says that we are to sing. Who are you to sing to? By the way, if anybody needs to move because of the sun, go ahead, all right? Psalm 95, verse 1 says, you are to do something. There is a verb there. What's the verb? You sing, and who are you to sing to? Sing to the Lord. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, we're, let us worship, and there's another action, bow down. You're to bow down. Verse 6 says, we are to kneel before the Lord our Maker. Verse 7, we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. It says, He is our God. So we're to hear His voice. Just as sheep hear the voice of their shepherd. Verse 8, we're not to harden our heart. Look at Psalm 96, verse 3 says we are to declare His glory to everyone. 
Verse 4, we're to fear Him. Verse 8, Psalm 96, verse 8, we're to bring an offering to Him. Okay? You, you get the point? There's participation in this. It's not just sitting and doing nothing. You, you are bringing, you are doing, you are fearing, you are declaring, you're hearing, kneeling, bowing, singing. You get the point? Worship requires participation. No Christian should be a pew potato. You've heard of couch potatoes, right? The couch potatoes, you know, the guys who just sit there and they watch the sports and eat their bag of salt and vinegar chips and, hey, woman, get me my, you know, whatever it is. That's a couch potato, but sometimes we can be pew potatoes. But God doesn't want us to be a pew potato. He wants us to participate. And, and we're to do it hourly, physically, but we're also supposed to do it inwardly. We need to be eager. We need to be sincere in our public worship. Uh, I want you to notice what Jesus told the Samaritan woman when he was there at the well. Because this is very helpful. It's been helpful for me in understanding a little bit about worship. In John 4, it's on the screen here, Jesus said to the woman, The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Notice there's both. The Spirit and the truth. Jesus goes on to say, For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is Spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in Spirit and truth. So, there, there's two pendulum swings here that a lot of churches can, can swing on here, right? You can be focused on the truth part so much that your spirit isn't involved in the worship. But then there's some churches and some Christians, they can go way over on the, they love the spirit part. I mean, their, their emotions, their whole, whole beings involved in it. But where's the truth? In fact, they can even be singing heresy. <laughs> right? So we've got to have both. Because God says you must worship in spirit and truth. And if you're not doing both of them at the same time, then you're not actually worshiping. So we need to exercise spiritual discipline to avoid becoming this type of a person. In fact, Jesus, uh, look what Jesus says. he's, He's warning us, hey, avoid being this way. Look what Jesus says in Mark chapter 7, verse 6. He says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Do you see that, what Jesus is saying there? It's not enough to just honor Him with your lips. You can say the right things, but Jesus is saying, hey, if your heart is far from me, I don't care what's coming out of your mouth. That's what Jesus is saying. You're not actually worshiping when your whole being is not involved in that process. Well, we've been looking at um, a DVD on Thursday nights from John Piper called The Blazing Center. Very helpful and I love uh, one of the illustrations he, he gives in that. It actually comes from his wonderful book, Desiring God. Again, if you've never read Desiring God, it's an awesome book. It's a must-read. Here's what he says in his book, Desiring God. Quote, If God's reality is displayed to us in his word or his world, and we do not then feel in our heart any grief or longing or hope or fear or awe or joy or gratitude or confidence then we may dutifully sing and pray and recite and gesture 
as much as we like, but it will not be real worship. We cannot honor God if our heart is far from Him. Worship is a way of gladly reflecting back to God the radiance of His worth. This cannot be done by mere acts of duty. It can be done only when spontaneous affections arise in the heart. Consider the analogy of a wedding anniversary. Suppose on this day I bring home a dozen long-stemmed roses, red roses, for my wife. When she meets me at the door, I hold out the roses, and she says, Oh, Johnny, they're beautiful. Thank you. And she gives me a big hug. Then suppose I hold out my hand and say, Oh, don't mention it. It's my duty. What happens? Is not the exercise of duty a noble thing? Do not we honor those we dutifully serve? Not much. Not if there's no heart in it. Dutiful roses are a contradiction in terms. If I'm not moved by a spontaneous affection for her as a person, the roses don't honor her. In fact, they belittle her. They are a very thin covering for the fact that she does not have the worth or beauty in my eyes to kindle affection. All I can muster is a calculated expression of marital duty. The real duty of worship is not the outward duty to say or do the liturgy. It is the inward duty, the command, according to Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord. The reason this is the real duty of worship is that this honors God, while the empty performance of ritual does not. If I take my wife out for the evening on her anniversary and she asks me, why do you do this? The answer that honors her most is, because nothing makes me happier tonight than to be with you. It's my duty is a dishonor to her. It's my joy is an honor. End quote. Well said. So what's the point? What's the point? For our worship to be fully pleasing to God, it must be motivated by joy for God, not by just duty. You can't just say, hey, you know, I'm going to come to church and I'm going to give money in the offering and worship God by uh, fellowshipping with other believers or singing or reading scripture or praying because it's something I have to do. I don't really feel like it, but I'm just ticking the box. God's not pleased with that. Now, don't get me wrong. Obedience is important, okay? Obedience is very important. But the truest expression of worship occurs when our our duty, doing the right thing, if you will, actually becomes your delight. When those two come together, then you're worshiping. Let me give you some elements of corporate worship. Number one, this one is probably not talked about enough, and underemphasize much in the Christian sphere. But let's think about this for a moment. We need to prepare for public worship. Before you come together to worship with the saints, you need to prepare. This, uh, there's a right kind of participation in worship, and that requires preparation. The right kind of preparation of worship service actually begins long before the the actual service itself starts. In fact, next Sunday, you know what? I've already started preparing for next Sunday. So in my own heart, 
I'm already in preparation mode for next Sunday. Hopefully you are too. Our attitudes or actions during the week are often going to determine whether we, when we come together in corporate worship, whether or not we're actually worshiping God and pleasing Him. So the most important issue in this regard is whether we spend the week walking with God in holiness. We looked at that in Psalm 96. Remember, it even says there, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. That was verse 9. Psalm 15 is helpful in this regard. I like what David, he asked the Lord in Psalm 15, verse 1. He says, Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Now, let me, let me just give you, in case you're not familiar with the context, David's referring primarily to our individual salvation and our sanctification there. Uh, their tabernacle imagery uh, makes them applicable, though, to the subject of corporate worship. He mentions the tent, the tabernacle. So, of course, that was the place where they would come and worship God. So it's applicable to the subject of corporate worship. But, but what I want you to see here, we'll look at just a moment, is this, this psalm here helps us to see what a true worshiper is. Now put yourself in, the, in, in this passage, okay? See if this is you. All right? Insert your name into the he here. All right, Psalm 15, verse 2. Here's what it says. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Now that's not an exhaustive list, but that, those, are, those are some helpful things. Are you living this way? Are you living a holy life, a sanctified life, a life set apart from sin unto God? The psalmist, God says here, in answer to David's question, who's going to sojourn in this tent? Who's going to dwell on God's holy hill? This is the kind of person who will dwell with God and worship Him. So this passage clearly indicates that the quality of our worship in church is dependent upon the integrity of our lives then. You can't come to God and, and pretend to worship Him and regard sin in your life can't do it. You can't even pray, the Bible says, if you regard iniquity in your heart. Well, another point is, that I want to make is this, that we must worship God privately during the week if we want to please Him then in our public worship. See, you can't ignore God in your private worship, you know, six days out of the week and then come on Sunday and expect, you know, just to flip the switch. It's not going to happen. You've got to worship God 24-7. That doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. I'm, I certainly haven't been perfect this week. I've sinned against God. I've had to, there's sins that I've had to confess. There's, uh, you know, I've had to make some repentance in my life. There's things that God wanted me to do that I didn't do, and things that God didn't want me to do that I did do, okay? So I'm not perfect, all right? Neither are you. But we... we, we 
when we do sin against God, we, we, we must come to him, get back up. The just man falls seven times, but he gets back up. Another thing we need to do is pray specifically for each other and for church services. That's one way we can prepare ourselves. Don't just pray for yourself. Pray for one another. Pray for me. Pray for us, corporately speaking. Another way we can prepare is go to bed early on Saturday night, and then you get up early enough that you're not running around like a chicken with your head cut off. <laughs> Too many Christians do that. You know, if you, uh, you know, if you have to have your breakfast all ready and your clothes set out and all these sort of things, to 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 be ready so you're you're not stressed and you can get here early so you can fellowship with God's people, then by all means do that. Your corporate worship actually starts Saturday afternoon. Okay? One of the reasons why some of you are late and you're not here before ten o'clock is because you're not preparing on Saturday. Shame on you. Okay? You need to be rebuked. Is worshiping God your ultimate priority or not? It should be. Then start Saturday afternoon, okay? I like what Charles Spurgeon said. He doesn't doesn't pull his punches, does he? Here's what Spurgeon says. Love this. Quote, There should be some preparation of the heart in coming to the worship of God. Consider who he is in whose name we gather, and surely we cannot rush together without thought. Consider whom we profess to worship and we shall not hurry into his presence as men run to a fire. Moses, the man of God, was warned to put off his shoes from his feet when God only revealed himself in a bush. How should we prepare ourselves when we come to him who reveals himself in Christ Jesus, his dear son? There should be no stumbling into the place of worship, half asleep. No roaming here as if it were no more than going to a playhouse. We cannot expect to profit much if we bring with us a swarm of idle thoughts and a heart crammed with vanity. If we are full of folly, we may shut out the truth of God from our minds. End quote. Well said. Some of you have a problem coming in here and worshiping. You're not actually worshiping because, because of this very reason. Your mind's filled with all sorts of other stuff instead of God. Well, we also need to learn from the teaching of God's Word. That's number two. Learn from the teaching of God's Word. Yes, prepare by all means, but when we come together in corporate worship, we need to learn from the teaching of God's Word. How often do we as listeners learn very little when we come together in corporate worship, though? You know, one of the revealing questions is when, when somebody asks you, a couple days later after the sermon or, or after the teaching, say, you know, hey, what was, what was that sermon about? What did you learn on Sunday? Uh, oh, uh, ooh, it, it was on the Bible, I think. Yeah, oh, good, good start, okay. You know, that's very revealing, isn't it? Well, let me put it to you bluntly. This is unacceptable and displeasing to God, Because he's placed the teaching of his word at the forefront of corporate worship. I mean, if we're we're not doing a very good job of listening, we're we're not doing what God wants us to do. 
Biblical worship has always involved hearing from God as, as well as giving to Him. It's both. In fact, um, I'll just give you a few verses here in a moment, but the centrality of biblical teaching in corporate worship is apparent to anybody who actually looks at their New Testament. Let me just give you two examples here. Acts 2.42, one of the core activities of the local church is they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. There's a lot of things missing in the four core activities of local church that many churches do. But the number one thing, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Acts 5.42 says, Daily in the temple and in every house they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. You want to know why they turned the world right side up? This is one of the reasons why. They were learning from the teaching of God's word and then they applied it. So if worship services should find their greatest appeal and benefit in the Bible through the teaching and the preaching, why does there seem to be such ineffectiveness and and sometimes even boredom when it comes to a church service? You ever been bored in church? Oh, I'm yawning. Man, what time is it? You're constantly watching the clock. You Man, I can't wait for that sports to come on. Get out of here. Why is that? Well, I'll be frank with you. A lot of it has to do with the preachers, okay? <laughs> Partly my fault. Number one, many men are... I'll give you some reasons, all right? Number one, many men are not trained as well as they should be. Number two, many men do not prepare as well as they could. And number three, many men lack the giftedness to be effective teachers. Okay? That's reality, okay? That's part of the problem. But that's not all of the problem. Okay? Uh, I found it helpful what Jay Adams said in his book. A, he, had a, he wrote a book called The Consumer's Guide to Preaching. <laughs> Consumer's Guide to Preaching. So Jay Adams offers another explanation here. He says that those who listen to sermons are just as much to blame for their ineffectiveness as those who deliver them. Here's what he says, quote, Too many laymen speak about the preaching event as if it were a one-way street, as if the responsibility for what transpires when the Bible is proclaimed rests solely on the shoulders of the preacher. But that's not so. Effective communication demands competence from all parties, end quote. You understand that? Communication doesn't actually take place unless it's a two-way street. Okay? If I stand up here and speak, and no one's here, and nobody hears and understands, communication didn't take place, then did it? You have to hear and understand it. Do something with that. So Jay Adams is right about communication there. Very helpful. So, the very definition of the word necessitates reception, not just transmission. I mean, you, you take that, for example, if, if uh, the radio towers or the TV antennas are, are not receiving what's being transmitted, if there's no reception going on, then communication hasn't taken place. It's the same with God's word. So, you could have the finest order in the world giving the clearest speech that's ever been given. But if, if that person's speaking to a brick wall, then communication hasn't taken place. You understand? 
So, I can tell you that many preachers would say they often feel like they're talking to a brick wall. <laughs> I wonder that about some of you at times. I'm, I'm, try, I'm trying to look in your eyes. The, the eyes are the window of the soul, right? I'm trying to look at you, try to figure out what, what's actually going on in your mind, your heart. I want to know. So, some of you, I've asked you that even. What, what's going on? How are you feeling? You know, I care about you, right? That's why I'm asking. That's why I'm looking at you. Again, here's what Spurgeon says, very helpful. Quote, we are told men ought not to preach without preparation. Granted, but we add men ought not to hear without preparation. Which do you think needs the most preparation? The sower or the ground? I would have the sower come with clean hands, but I would have the ground well plowed and harrowed, well turned over and the clods broken before the seed comes in. It seems to me that there is more preparation needed by the ground than by the sower, more by the hearer than by the preacher. End quote. You ever thought about that? All right. Now here's your chance this week. Here's, here's my exhortation for you this week. You have six days to plow up the ground of your heart to get ready for next Sunday. It's going to take all six days to be ready for the seed of God's Word to, to take root in your heart. Use that time wisely. So hearing the Word of God properly is a scriptural responsibility. In fact, look what Jesus says here. Jesus says in Matthew thirteen nine, Who has ears to hear, let him hear. Mark 4, 24, take heed what you hear. Luke 8, 18, take heed how you hear. You get the point? Jesus cares. It's important. Well, here's where the rubber is going to meet the road, okay? Again, here's ten helpful suggestions. Only suggestions, okay? These aren't commands. Uh, But Jay Adams gives us ten suggestions that will help us become better listeners better learners during the teaching of God's Word. By the way, if you ever want to read a book on this, I've got a couple books that will uh, help stimulate you in this regard. But here's what he says. Number one, test yourself to see if you are in the faith. That's what 2 Corinthians 13 says. If you're not in the faith, well then, you're not going to be receiving the Word. Only those who have been Saved by or saved from sin by grace through faith in Christ can truly understand the truth of God's word. Number two, number two, confess and forsake your sin and do it continually. First John one nine. Run to the God who is faithful and just, who is willing and able to forgive you of your sin. You can't come with unclean hands, unclean heart. First Peter two it talks about us putting aside our sin so that we may long for the pure milk of the word. Number three, prepare yourself for the message the night before by praying, getting to bed on time, and also by rising early enough to have plenty of time to get ready in the morning. You know, don't, don't expect to be here at 9.30 if the alarm clock's going off at 9 or even 8. Right? It's going to take some effort. Number four, Through prayer and disciplined thought, adjust your attitude prior to the service so you can expect to hear exciting and life-changing truths from God. 
Are you, are you expecting an encounter with God when you come here? You should be. Sunday's my favorite day of the week. I love being with you. I love proclaiming God's Word. Nothing more important than that. Number five, eliminate any potential distractions that might hinder your attentiveness during the message. There's all kinds of little things that can distract us, right? We're so easily distracted. I mean, we, <clears throat> you know, the, the tag on our shirt could irritate us to distract us. A fly or, you know, some of you, I mean, the, the sun shining is, is a distraction, right? Children making noises can be a distraction. Uh, you know, those chairs are a distraction, okay? It's reality, <laughs> right? There's all signs, sorts of things that distract us. But we've got to do what we can to eliminate those potential distractions. Romans 13 says, hey, don't make provision for the flesh. Okay? Our very, our very sin nature is going to do what it can to stop us from receiving God's word. Number six, make a concerted effort during the service to understand and retain as much as you can from the teaching. That's why many people recommend taking notes. Again, it's only a suggestion, but it is something that's been proven to help us to understand and, and retain. Uh, if you're only listening, you're less likely to retain. But if you're listening, writing, seeing, that's one reason I use PowerPoint, using all these things will help you, hopefully, to retain God's Word in your life. Number seven, practice and develop your skills of discernment by examining the teaching carefully. Don't just listen and say, oh, that was cool. No, remember to maintain a humble, teachable spirit. Be, be like a Berean, right? I mean, they had the apostles coming to them, but they, they still looked at God's word and said, hey, is what the apostles saying matching up with God's word? Because that's the authority. And that's why every one of you needs to have a Bible, right? You need to be looking at your Bible, is, is, is what is being said matching up with Scripture. So there's several verses you can look at here. We don't have time to look at these. But number eight, discuss the message with other Christians after the service. So repetition aids learning, right? Very helpful. Discuss that. It'll help you to, to remember and learn. Ask questions. Share, share how God has used his word in your life. Challenge, challenge the other believers. Hey, what are you learning? Number nine, study the passage or topic further by discussing it with the teacher or the preacher or other knowledgeable Christians and by referring to good commentaries and other helpful books. You know, you have a question during, during the sermon, write it down. Say, hey, you know, I, want a little, I want to know a little bit more about that or I don't quite understand it. Write, write it down. And say, hey, I'm going to go back and study that. It's a good thing to do. And number ten, purpose in your heart to make any changes necessary. As a result of what you have learned, pray about those changes and practice them daily. James 1 says, just don't be a hearer of the word, be a doer of the word. You, you failed if all you're doing is hearing and you're not doing something with God's word. All right, number three. Pray with and for the body. Pray with and for the body. Do you realize prayer is also part of worship? Okay, singing, singing songs is not the only part of worship. 
Prayer is also worship. Corporate prayer is important as well. It was an important element in Old Testament worship gatherings. You see them doing that a lot. It was, uh, you see the early church, they continued that tradition that was set forth in the Old Testament. Uh, I've given you uh, several examples there in the book of Acts. The early church prayed together. Which is why many churches today have midweek prayer, prayer services together. Let me encourage you to make that a priority in your life. Okay? Uh, you know, unless you're providentially hindered, try to be with God's people as much as you can. So, let me just say this practically speaking. When somebody else is praying in a corporate setting, be involved in that. Okay? I'm not, I'm not suggesting you speak out loud with them. But, but listen to what they're saying. Be in agreement. You know, hey, you can say amen. Or, hey, you know, it's, it's all right. When, he's, when the person prays, says amen, you can say amen when he's done. All right? That's one of the ways you can be in agreement with him. Be involved in the prayer. Don't just listen to it. <clears throat> Next, sing to each other and to the Lord. <laughs> okay? We often know about singing to the Lord, but do you realize Scripture tells us to sing to one another, to each other? Did you realize that? For example, Ephesians chapter 5 says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. So yes, by all means, sing and make melody to the Lord, But we're also to address one another, that's other believers, as we sing. That's that's one of the things I love being about up here when we're singing is, I get to look at you. I feel like I'm I'm actually doing this. I'm addressing you as I'm singing. I'm doing what Scripture says to do. Some people, I know, I've, I've known of some people, they love when their congregational singing is going on. They, they purposely, you know, they're just looking at everybody as they're singing, you know, just because they want to do what God tells them to do here. They're dressing the other people in the congregation. It's a good thing to do. So, let's move on. What else do we need to do? Observe the ordinances of the church. Observe the ordinances of the church. The ordinances are things, just another means of, of God's grace where we can worship. God has established two ordinances in the New Covenant. Uh, of course, you see there, we have baptism and Lord's Supper. Beautiful pictures of God's grace in the believer's life. And unfortunately, though, many professing Christians today, they kind of just think of these things as, uh, as suggestions. They can take them or leave them. These are things that, hey, you know, I don't have to do this. You know, if somebody's getting baptized, you know, fine, you know. And often when we have baptisms, we often end up going to the river. And it's a wonderful time where we can celebrate what God's done. Praise Him for that. Right? So if we ever have a baptism and go to the river, you need to be a part of that. When we have Lord's Supper, you need to make that a priority. That's part of worship. Again, listen to what Charles Spurgeon said. Quote, it's on the screen here. Never mind that bread and wine, unless... You can use them as folks often use their spectacles. What do they use them for? 
to look at? No, to look through them. So use the bread and juice as a pair of spectacles. Look through them and do not be satisfied until you can say, yes, yes, I can see the Lamb of God. End quote. So, yes, we worship God in the ordinances, but remember, they're they're not the end. They're to help you to see God. See the Lamb of God. And number six, give to the Lord and to His church. You realize Scripture says that giving is, is a way we can worship. Just not, it's not just singing. There's all kinds of ways we can worship, right? And giving is one of those. Giving of our financial resources to the Lord is, well, it's, it's a duty, yes, but it's also a wonderful privilege. God has made us stewards of His stuff, so to speak. It's all His. You're, you're to be a wise steward, a wise manager of what God has given to you. So remember, it's not yours, it's His, and He wants you to give some of it back to Him. Manage it properly. Interestingly enough, um, we're commanded by God to do this. 1 Corinthians 16.2 says, On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. I know some people aren't paid every week, all right? So, you, so the command isn't to do it every week, but the command is, yes, we need to give to God through the local church. And the wonderful thing is God says He's going he's to bless us when we do. When we give some of His stuff back to Him, He says, if you, if you sow bountifully, God says you're going to reap bountifully. But if you sow sparingly, you're going to reap sparingly. So if you wonder why some of you might be having some problems right now in your life, it might be because you're sowing sparingly. Maybe you're not even at all. Maybe you're not even sowing at all. Maybe you've stopped giving to God through the local church. You know what? God's not going to bless you if you do that. He's not going to bless you. God says He comes first. Honor Him, He says, with your first fruits, And then your barns will be full. Number seven, serve one another. Serve one another. Even, even when we come together, we're to serve one another. This is what Hebrews 10 says, right? We're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Why? So we can exhort one another to love and good works. God's given us, every believer has at least one spiritual gift. God's given that to you, and, and Corinthians says it's for the purpose of the edification of the body of Christ. Do you know what your spiritual gift is? And if you do, are you using it in the body for the edification of this body? For example, in 1 Corinthians 12, it says God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating in various kinds of tongues, just to name a few gifts there. All right? God's given every believer at least one spiritual gift for the edification of the body. So, and we can, if God's, for example, if God's given you the gift of helps, are you using it in this body? If you have the gift of administration, are you using it in this body? The gift of teaching, are you using it? All right, so forth. So, we need to use these, exercise these gifts. 
Right? God's gifted us in different ways. The body's only going to be as healthy as, as the individual parts of that body are working together in unity. Right? So one part of the body can't look at the other and say, hey, you know, the foot, you know, what, is, what does God say in Scripture in Corinthians? The foot can't look at the eye and say, hey, I want to be an eye. The eye can't look at the hand and say, hey, I want to be a hand. Now, it, 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 God's made you the way you are. Be thankful for that. Be content. Use that gift that God has given to you. And don't look at other people and grumble and complain. Say, hey, I'm glad God made them that way. Say, that's, what we, that, that's the attitude we need to have. Say, I'm glad God made me this way. How can I use this gift or gifts He's given to me for the service within this local body? This body's only going to be healthy when each one of us are using those gifts that God has given to us. One of the ways we can worship God is by using those spiritual gifts. Part of my exhortation is to use that gift. Find out what that gift is. If you don't know what it is, come and talk to me. I'll be happy to talk to you about that. When God reveals to you what that gift is, then use it. One of the ways we can worship is just by showing friendliness, showing hospitality to others. Hospitality is a command, by the way. It's not an option. Every believer is supposed to show hospitality. Those are just some things that, that, that you can do to worship God. It is your ultimate priority. Ultimate priority. Everything else comes after that. Worship comes before your job, before your family, before your, your, own, your own body. Anything, anything else you can think of. Worship of God comes first. Make that your ultimate priority. Every day this week, when you get up, you get up tomorrow morning, say, God, you come first. You are King of kings and Lord of lords. I put you first. I will worship you today above everything else and only you. Make your quiet time a priority. Okay? Don't just listen to him. Talk to him. Okay? It's a two-way street, right? You, you talk to him through prayer. He talks to you through his word. Make that your necessary food. Okay? And so when we come together next week, your, your, your ground should be plowed up. It should be ready to receive the, the seeds from the word of God so they can take root and bear fruit. May God by His grace, enable us to do this. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful uh, for this wonderful privilege You've given to us. We can worship You. We're thankful that You're knowable, at least to a certain extent. You've revealed Yourself in, in Your creation. We see Your handiwork, the Godhead. We see You in Your Word. So thank You for revealing Yourself in this wonderful book. May we understand the importance of worship, that it is our ultimate priority. We look forward to the day in heaven when we no longer have a sin nature and everything is perfect and we can worship you in spirit and in truth. And we will be able to see you as you really are. And because our sin nature is gone, we're We're not going to be consumed. We're not going to be afraid. We're going to love you, be totally devoted to you. Father, may our affections be set on things above, not on the earth. May we long to continually 
build on this relationship. May our fellowship with you this, this week and for the rest of our life be sweet. May we love you with all, holding nothing back. May there be absolutely nothing that comes between us and you. May you have that preeminent, exalted position which you rightfully deserve. May you be our greatest treasure. Above above all the pleasures and people and things of this life. Father, we recognize that that's not always the case. Even this week, every one of us have sinned against you. We've fallen short of your glory. And there may even be some here today who have never worshipped you because they're not a believer. Father, I pray you would open their eyes, that one, maybe, or two, or three, who who are not true believers, open their eyes. May they see you. May they long to worship you. May they long for the day where they themselves can also be in heaven and worship you and to be with you. So, Father, show them their sin. May they recognize that they have fallen short of your glory. They don't match up to your standard. We're all sinners. But there is a Savior who has paid the penalty for sin. Open their eyes to that truth. Open all of our eyes. May we understand that, that, even, that even sanctification itself is a work of your grace. So enable us to see the idols of our hearts, those things that, that hinder our fellowship with you. That may we uh, come to you humbly, seeing our sin as you see it, as Isaiah did in chapter 6. May May we see our sin, may, our see, may we see our sinful lips, our, uh, even the sinful actions and thoughts we have, and uh, confess and forsake those running to you as a holy God. Running to you because we love you, not just fear you. So open our, our minds to behold wonderful things from your word. May we understand this importance of worship and be doers of the word and not just hearers only. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.